0: So there is going to be a public inquiry into the Liberal government's decision to invoke emergency powers back during the convoy protests earlier this year. Now, that's part of the legislation. If you invoke emergency powers, a public inquiry is absolutely mandated as a result of that. So that's what we are getting. It was announced on Monday. So the justice who is in charge of leading this inquiry is going to have a little under 10 months. To look at the circumstances leading up to the invocation of the Emergencies Act and how the government used those exceptional powers. But let's talk more about that, learn more about this process. Abby Dashman joins us now, director of the Canadian Civil Liberty Association's criminal justice program. Abby, thank you for being here. My pleasure. Have we ever gone through this process
1: before? This specific process, no. This is the first time uh, the Emergencies Act has ever been used. Um, So we've never had an inquiry into the use of these emergency powers. But we have had public inquiries before. um, And uh, this inquiry will have the powers under part of the Public Inquiries Act federally. So it's not a completely foreign process.
0: Okay, so what are you going to be watching for? What kind of questions do you think need to be answered here?
1: Yeah, you know, it's really important to us that this inquiry uh, look very closely at the government's actions. That was the purpose of mandating an inquiry after using emergency powers. Um, It's a recognition that these powers are extraordinary, uh, that there is a significant risk um, to democracy if they're misused, and that uh, the public needs to have a robust examination of the government's actions. So while the context is undoubtedly important. There are really um, critical questions that I think do need to be answered about policing, about what was happening in Ottawa and at the border. Uh, The focus really should be at the end of the day on the government's actions um were they justifiable were they legal Um, and we certainly have um, really deep concerns um and and have said uh very clearly that we don't think that this was a legal use of the emergencies act
0: let's talk about those concerns then so why did you feel that way
1: yeah, well, there's there's really key thresholds in the act. And this is, again, to prevent it from being misused. It, it allows government to skip um, typical normal democratic processes that are checks and balances on power. And so in order for the government to use this act, they have to meet a series of legal thresholds. It has to be a uh, national emergency that cannot be addressed under existing laws that the provinces have. Uh, it has to be in this specific incident um, that we're looking at here. It has to be a public order emergency and there's a very specific definition of a public order emergency in the act And then the the powers uh, that the government uses should be uh, tailored to where the emergency is actually taking place. And on all those fronts, uh, the declaration that we saw from the government that applied across Canada was not specifically targeted to Ottawa or the border sites where they said they were most concerned, as well as the powers uh, and the orders that, that they passed um, pursuant to that proclamation, which again impacted every single Canadian um, or potentially could have, were not targeted. Um, we don't think that uh, it was a legal or tailored use of really extraordinary emergency powers.
0: Now, how important, how significant do you think this process is, Abby, given the precedent that this is going to set?
1: I think it's really significant. You know, Canada does see many Um, uh, disruptive protests across this country. It is a part of democratic life. It is a part of democratic life that can cause hardship for people in local communities. can have enormous economic impacts. You think of uh, blockades of rail lines um, or logging roads, right? Those have huge economic impacts. Um, We also have protests across this country um, where uh, downtown cores are shut down. Uh, Quebec had student protests that shut down uh, downtowns of their major cities for months. months and months and months a few years ago this is part of what it means to live in a democracy they're challenging policing situations uh, but the use of emergency powers uh national declaration of emergency in response to really challenging domestic policing situation is, is is quite concerning it's a dangerous precedent i think um and uh one that we need to scrutinize carefully and as a civil liberties organization, push back against.
0: Is there a role for groups like yours then to testify in front of this inquiry? Like, do we know who will get called to speak?
1: I hope so. I certainly hope so. We, we certainly will be seeking to participate. Um, you know, the the process hasn't been set out yet. It's in uh, it's it's in the appointed commissioner's hands. So. Um, I would expect that we will see more details on exactly what process this inquiry will have. Um, But I I would hope that it has broad participation from the groups that are concerned about these issues, as well as individuals who are impacted, so that we can actually have a robust examination of the context and what the government did.
0: In that case, it's a bit of a a tight timeline, isn't it? I mean, we've got under 10 months here, and we haven't even heard what the parameters are kind of going to be.
1: It is an absolutely tight timeline. I don't know of any other public inquiry that has operated on such a tight, on such a short timeline. Um, it is set out in legislation. Uh, so that, that, you know, that is the difficulty that this is the timeline prescribed by law. Um, so we'll just have to see, uh, you know, they, they will have to get up and running quite quickly, though.
0: All right. We'll wait and see what happens. Abby, thank you for your time on that this morning. Thank you. My pleasure appreciate that. Abby Dashman is the director of the Canadian Civil Liberties Association's criminal justice program. They would like to participate in this inquiry. Justice Paul Rouleau is going to be leading this inquiry. He is an Ontario appeals court judge. He will have just under 10 months or so to look at the circumstances leading up to the invocation of the emergencies act and what the government did with those powers. And we're talking exceptional powers here to bring an end to those convoy protests. I think it's going to be a fascinating process. And we've never done this before. As Abby pointed out, we never used the Emergencies Act before. We've never gone through this entire process before. So the precedent that it sets will be incredibly significant. So yes, we'll be talking more about that over the next 10 months for sure. This is Mornings with Simi. Well, what happened to Trayvon Desjardins-Chalefou? Chalafu? is the subject of the latest report from B.C.'s representative for children and youth here in B.C. And once again, those findings, well, they are not very good for our system. Joining us now to talk more about it is Jennifer Charlesworth, B.C.'s representative for children and youth. Thank you for being here. Thank you for having me, Simmy. What led to you looking into Trayvon's death?
2: Well, let's just be clear. We haven't, we have looked into Trayvon's death, but it was not us that has released a report. It was related to the Globe and Mail articles that this has come up to people's awareness, we have completed a review, but we actually have to wait until the coroner has completed her work and made a determination as to her inquest as to whether we go further into an investigation. So I actually can't comment on Trayvon's situation um, because of confidentiality and respect for his family. But the Globe and Mail raised concerns about the broader residential care system. So that's a better topic for conversation.
0: Right. So that's definitely something that you do and have looked into. And I guess what I wonder is, you know, it feels like we've been talking about this forever. Are we not seeing improvements in that system?
2: Well, it's a very interesting situation and complex. So it's not that we aren't seeing improvements. It's that the context has changed dramatically for us. So whatever improvements were being put in place, the challenges that we're facing are outstripping the pace of our improvements. So first of all, the ministry is actually doing a very significant overhaul, if you will, uh, creating a new model for specialized care services. But that's gonna take a little while to roll out. In the meantime, there are a number of things happening. First, let's talk about the children. There are fewer children in care, which is a good thing, but those who are in care typically have much more complex needs, mental health, substance use, a history of trauma, lots of things going on in their lives. At the same time, as we all know, we're facing a housing crisis, labor and skills shortages, trying to find staff to to support these young people in the homes is difficult. We've got uh, difficulties throughout the entire province. It's not just focused on an Indigenous organization or in one particular part of the province. What we're seeing now is because of the the complexity of the needs the housing crisis and cost of housing and the difficulty finding staff that are qualified and capable of dealing with these very high needs we're seeing a very difficult situation that is unprecedented for us
0: is there a way that you would recommend like to put something in place or systems in place do we need more checks and balances like how do we how do we keep an eye on these situations
2: I definitely think we need more checks and balances because, of course, the ministry and agencies are experiencing the challenge of fewer staff, more higher caseloads, or higher complexity in caseloads. So, being able to do those typical checks and balances of visiting with young people hearing how they're doing, checking the resource, that's important. I think it's also really important that we hold those who are providing the care to our most vulnerable children, those uh, residential service operators, um, to a very high standard to ensure that they are meeting a threshold of high quality care. And the other thing is to recognize that that's going to cost us and to ensure that they have the resources that are necessary to hire those people who can do the most beautiful therapeutic work with these young people, because that's what these these kids need, and uh, they have lots a bright future ahead of them if we can provide those appropriate resources. But that does cost money, yeah, and yeah. it does take. Uh, the other thing that's important too is we actually need a greater supply than the number of children, because then you can start to make sure that the fit for that child and their needs. Is is a it's a good fit with that organization and what they can do. And we don't have a sufficient supply in order to make those good des- decisions for children.
0: But when you talk about it's going to cost money, isn't yeah. that short-term money though? Isn't that the money that's going to cost us upfront? Like, is there not a long-term benefit to doing this?
2: There's absolutely a long-term benefit for doing better care or therapeutic care. And in fact, I was a co-author of a report in 2011 that spoke to the importance of doing the good therapeutic work earlier in a child's journey and a family's journey in order to offset uh, so if even if we just took it from an economics point of view if we invest wisely we will have better outcomes but of course the most important thing is what are the outcomes for these children and how is it that we can ensure that they're on a good track because they've had the timely mental health support, uh, substance use support, family support, cultural connections to uh, their home, their, their culture and their community. Those kinds of things will make a big difference in the long run. So really we do need to reimagine our whole service delivery system, and the ministry is on its journey and is doing a good job in that area. The challenge is that we're facing crises right now because of all the other things that are going on, not to mention COVID has impacted the mental health of children as well.
0: But you talk about the journey that the ministry is on. Is that going to result in significant changes? Do you think you said that we need to upend our delivery system, change the way we do things? Are we on track to do those kinds of things?
2: I think that there's some promise there, and I think there's a recognition. And in fact, we in the Representative for Children's and uh, and Youth Office is going to be putting a laser focus on this area over the next year or so to really say, okay, what we have had is a a model that served us at a different point in time. We have a very different socioeconomic, political, uh, 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 health context now so what do we need to do? Who's doing it best in the country? And what could we learn and, and bring forward here? And how is it that we deal right now, medium-term and longer-term?
0: So it does sound like there's a lot more work to be done here. Do you have so many yes. questions about this particular case too? Is this, is this the kind of case where you really want to get into it and dig for some answers when you, you hear about situations oh, like this?
2: Absolutely. I mean, these are, we hear and receive stories of some of the most tragic circumstances in this province for children. And this is one of those that absolutely affects your, your heart. And as I say, we have done what we call a comprehensive review already, and we are awaiting the coroner's determination. And then we, um, and I, I've said, depending on what the coroner decides to do, this is one of those that we would take to a full investigation, again, depending on whether the, the coroner goes right. to inquest, because it's one of those that will reveal a lot of learnings for us, not just at the end, um, but we often, with, with our stories, will look, what happened in the early, early days? Um, what kinds of supports for families? What are the things that were going on? So this is one of, of a number that really pulls at you and says, we have to learn uh, what's going on so that we can ensure that the system is a stronger system.
0: You know, it would just be nice if you didn't have so much material to work with, if you know what I mean.
2: I know exactly. I would love to not have to be dealing with uh, hundreds of cases and situations and stories that we deal with every month. Um, And as I say, we are in a very difficult time. And I think it's it's something for all of us as neighbours and as family members and friends. It's not just about the ministry doing the work or health or, you know, it's, it's really all of us. We're in a very, our children are hurting right now. COVID has been unkind to them. The worries of the world is unkind to them. And it's really time for us to lean in and support our young people.
0: Thank you very much for your time this morning. Thank you, Simi. Take care. Jennifer Charlesworth, BC's representative for children and youth. That's very true, right? Kids are really feeling the effects of the last couple of years on top of everything else that they feel the effects of too. And that is something that I think we're going to see the impacts of ahead.
3: This is Mornings with Simi.
0: Story has been in the news recently for sure. And it just seems like there's a lot of confusion around this. The BC government says, well, it's working with Ottawa to ensure the cost of required medical exams are covered for Ukrainian newcomers in the province. But as more and more of them are arriving, we're finding out that, listen, some of them spent hundreds of dollars to get the requisite medical and health tests to come here. It's a condition of their permits that they got from the federal government. And, you know, then they're covered for MSP. But the one thing that falls between the gaps are these tests. Like, are they covered? Are they not covered? What is happening with that? Well, joining us now to talk more about this is Sandra Robinson, a professor in organizational behavior and human resources at UBC. Sandra, thanks for being here. I'm glad to join you. Thank you. Why do you think there's so much confusion about this? Like, what is going on? (laughs) That's <laughs> a
4: good question. I think I think neither the feds or the provincial government currently want to have to cover this cost. And it's easier to just, you know, p- kick the can down the road a little bit. And uh, really, you know, it's political, so they don't necessarily want to address it directly. Um, both parties want the other one to cover it. If you talk to both of them, they'll say they're hoping the other party's going to cover it. Um, and that's where we're at. So, yeah, it is confusing. And it turns out most people don't have any idea then MSP doesn't cover those medical assessments. Um, in my group of, you know, I, I'm, I'm leading a group of, of neighbors, um, we're maybe 50 volunteers now, 19 Ukrainian families. We have a number of physicians in our group as volunteers, and they all thought MSP would cover it as well. We're just not familiar with this aspect. Um, when Canadians come in as refugees, the federal government provides um, ensures that that gets covered and paid for. Um, these The Ukrainians are not refugees. They're on visas Um, and, and for that reason, it's not an automatic thing that the federal government's picking up.
0: Okay. This is so interesting then. So this sounds like just a bit of a loophole that these people are falling through the cracks because well, technically we're welcoming them because they are refugees because of what's happening in Ukraine, but to process them faster, was it done this way?
4: I, I don't know for sure, but I think so. I, I really don't. I think well, there's two things I've heard. One is that um, because the Ukrainians could technically stay in European countries, Poland's been very generous to them. They could stay in Turkey. They could stay in Germany. Um, they're they're not deemed refugees by you know international laws. But uh, so that's one reason. Two is that um, you know this would be much quicker. To bring them in this way. I, I suspect two, maybe three is that it's also super costly and slow um, to bring in um, people as refugees. Um, we have to provide a whole a whole suite of resources up front. Um, and in this case, that's that's not happening. They're bringing them in and it makes sense because it's quick. But now everybody's scrambling to try and fill up those gaps and, and provide the coverage uh, that's somewhat similar to what refugees would receive because they really need it um, but this one thing—the medical assessments—that's um, definitely yeah. one of the things that
0: hasn't been patched over yet. Now, what prompted you to get involved, Sandra?
4: Oh, it's a long story. I, I was—I started off by trying to help someone I know who was based in the U.S. who needed her cousins to get relocated to Canada. They couldn't go to the U.S., so she thought Vancouver was the closest. She's in California, so I offered to help and 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 uh, provide support for her her cousins. And then they had a family they were traveling with, so I reached out to my network to find out if anyone else could help support the other family. And I was inundated with tons of people wanting to help. And so... I didn't want it to go to waste. <laughs> so I backed my Ukrainian contact that said, hey, can we get do we have other Ukrainians that need help? And it grew from there. Um, and yeah, so I didn't I didn't plan for this. I have no Ukrainian background, um, but it's something I'm passionate about now.
0: It sure sounds like it. So what has it been like for you and the people in your circle to get involved in this?
4: Oh, it's amazing. You know, I think anyone can imagine. It feels like a privilege to get to make a little bit of a difference. Um, as you watch what's going on in Ukraine and the horror, and and it's it is tragic, and you feel helpless. So this is a chance to do something. I mean, it's it's like spitting in the ocean, but it's still at least it's something. So I think we feel very fortunate and it's been very gratifying um, being able to help. You, you do very, it take, takes very little for you to make a huge difference for, for the families.
0: And, now, and I'm sure some people listening to this might think, well, I mean, it's only a couple hundred dollars for these medical tests. How big of a hardship is it? But maybe you can address that.
4: Sure, sure. The cheapest I've found so far is 200 per person um most families are larger than that if they have children i'm not sure yet if children are being charged i think they are but i have to clear i have to figure that out i don't know who can tell me that um and then also there's extra fees that the doctors char- have to charge you know the cost of x-rays blood work those are fixed costs that are coming out of the labs So it can run up to $400. That might not sound a lot for some families, but for Ukrainians, that would be huge. Because even those that are, some are working remotely, some have some savings, it really doesn't go far at all. I mean, they come and look at our groceries and they're, I mean, we do, we get shocked too, but they're really shocked. Our prices can be five times higher than what they're familiar with. Um, Our transit is 10 times higher. It's just a very different currency, and it doesn't yeah. transfer well. So even those that might have some means, it's still it's a huge amount of money for them.
0: Yeah, and if we're going to help, let's help, right? Sandra, thank you so much Thanks. for your time. Thank you. I appreciate the time to talk to you. Well, I hope this all gets worked out. That's Sandra Robinson. She's a professor in organizational behavior and human resources at UBC, but also somebody who is getting involved in helping people from Ukraine who want to come here. And she says, listen, this little... You know, this little fight between the federal government and the provincial government over who's paying for medical tests needs to be solved because people need all the help that they can get.
3: This is Mornings with Simi.
0: Well, mayors from some of B.C.'s biggest communities say they need help. They have sent a letter to the Attorney General saying they need solutions to the increase in property crimes and issues that they are dealing with. And they want to know what's going to be done about the repeat offenders causing these issues. Well, let's find out. Joining us now, David Eby, Attorney General and Minister Responsible for Housing. Good morning. Thank you for being here.
3: Good morning. Thanks for having me.
0: So let's talk about this issue. You got this letter from the mayors and they say they need help. So what is the response to that?
3: Yeah, I met with the mayors in December and they were outlining some of their concerns about what they're seeing, especially in downtown cores and their community. Uh, Provincially, when we look at the numbers, property crime is actually down uh, significantly over the course of the pandemic. And in Vancouver, uh, remarkably down over about a 10-year period. But the crime that is taking place uh, it seems to have shifted into downtown course and it's highly visible and not only that it appears to be concentrated among a uh, relatively small number of people uh, Obviously mental health and addiction are major factors um, uh, that that are driving people to commit these property crimes and it's just incredibly frustrating for the mayors and for residents to see this highly visible disorder and uh and chaos in some communities uh and want answers and so uh What we've been doing, what I asked them to do was to write, uh, to put together their um, information about what was happening in their communities. That was the content of the letter. Uh, And we're working together on how to respond to this. The province has complex care, which is 500 new beds for people with serious mental health and addiction issues that are opening across the province. That will be part of the solution without a doubt. But I suspect it's not the whole answer. And so we're working with, uh, we've been meeting with Vancouver Police. Uh, The Minister for Public Safety has been meeting with the RCMP. Uh, and uh, we're working with the mayors to identify ways to interrupt these cycles of offending for these really um, prolific offenders.
0: Yeah, so if we know that, that it, obviously it is highly visible, we all see it. So if we know if it's a downtown core, we know where it's happening, we know how it's happening, and why it's happening. Can we not target these areas very specifically? Like, how long does it take for us to do that?
3: Yeah, and, 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 so, I mean, not only that, we know who it is. <laughs> you know, what I mean, yeah, I, there's uh, the police uh, will tell you they, they know many of these offenders by name. Uh, and so we're working within two frameworks. One is the federal criminal law framework. And, and uh, the court and the federal government have been clear that um, prison is not going to be an answer. It's not available for people struggling with serious mental health and addiction issues. We have a decision out of the Supreme Court of Canada. We have Bill C-75 out of Ottawa about administration of justice. Census. This is where people are breaching the conditions that they're released on. That, uh, that, frankly, they're just not going to go to jail the way that they used to under this federal system. And so provincially, our opportunity is uh, to find ways to provide the services, and, uh, which includes uh, hospitalization for people who are profoundly ill, uh, drug treatment, housing, and opportunities for courts uh, to sentence people to these kinds, of, uh, these kinds of treatments so that they can get healthy. Uh, and they can interrupt that cycle of offending, and we've seen progress on those kinds of things. So that's the opportunity I think that's there. Obviously, local governments are looking at things like increasing uh, policing in areas that are particularly affected, um, uh, which they uh, they should do to respond to these kinds of things. But policing and jail um, is not going to be the answer to this for these people who are quite sick.
0: Is this a side effect then of that bill C75 that wasn't anticipated?
3: Uh, I don't know if it wasn't anticipated. Um, I think it, uh the bill is uh, is working as intended in the sense that, um, uh, you know, when you sentence somebody uh, or when you give somebody a condition as a judge to, uh, to be in the community and to abstain from uh, using drugs or alcohol, the person has a serious uh, addiction issue, uh, you're setting them up to fail. And, and so it's working as intended in, in that sense. Uh, but uh, certainly uh, the impacts are very visible and uh, yeah. without a doubt in many, many communities. And it's it, on the uh, silver lining front, it's really encouraging uh, the mayors and certainly up at the provincial government level uh, to be uh, accelerating our plans around these mental health and addiction beds uh, to respond to uh, the underlying issues that are driving these things.
0: Okay, so if we're accelerating that, then when can we start to see the impacts of all this work that's being done?
3: Uh, well, the uh, first uh, two facilities for complex care have uh, are uh, just opening or just in the process of opening in Vancouver. I was at uh, the opening of uh, the Fox Club complex care facility uh, in Surrey uh, just last week. Um, so these beds are already opening. We have 500 of them opening across the province. Um, we are also uh, currently uh, working with the mayors and uh, there'll be more to come uh, in the weeks ahead, uh, Simi, as we identify other ways to uh, address these offenders. And I also want to point out... Uh, you know, in terms of uh, what we're seeing in the streets, uh, we are seeing an increase in Vancouver and uh, provincially in uh, in uh, the category of violent crime and the biggest increase is in uttering threats and in threatening communications and what are described as level one assaults, which is an assault where someone's not injured but is profoundly frightened likely mm-hmm. uh, and so it it definitely um, suggests to me strongly uh, the link to the pandemic and the general decline in civility and uh, and and increase in mental health issues that some people are struggling with that we're starting to really see play out.
0: Can you force people into care, though? Like, if they don't want to go, how do you force them into that as part of like, treatment?
3: Yes, when someone is uh, is a danger to themselves and to other people, uh, they can be hospitalized involuntarily for mental health issues. We've increased the numbers of beds. Uh, we're just opening uh, more than 100 beds uh, up at the Old Riverview site uh, for that kind of care for people. To help them stabilize. The challenge, uh, I think, provincially has been when people are stabilized in those beds and they're released, uh, they're either released to a shelter uh, or to, uh, to uh, in, the, in the best case scenario previously, to some kind of uh, government housing. Um, but uh, often they decompensate and end up back outside and back into the same cycle. Right. And so the complex care beds that we're opening provide that interim step so people can be released from hospital to a more intensive care environment. It's voluntary. Uh, but the care is right there in the building and there's lots of support for people. Uh, and if they have to go back to hospital, that housing will be and those services will be reserved for them. Uh, so we're building that system. And uh, but I also think there are probably additional steps we could take, whether through uh, crown prosecutors, police uh, and other provincial avenues. And we're working with the mayors and the Minister of Public Safety, Mike Farmworth and I. Uh, are working with them to uh, to bring those opportunities forward.
0: So do you think that the cycle can be broken then of the addiction and then trying to feed the addiction and then stealing to feed the addiction and all of that?
3: Well, yeah, uh, without a doubt, um, drug treatment and, uh, and helping people get clean and or manage their addictions um, is, uh, is demonstrated. There are programs that have taken place in the province that have uh, demonstrated, including under the uh, previous government, uh, the programs just weren't continued. Uh, we know that we can interrupt these things um, and we can be successful with that. Um, And uh, also, though, Simi, there are a group of people who will not voluntarily participate in these things, so we need to find opportunities to address that as well.
0: All right, well, thank you for your time on that this morning thanks for having me. That's David Eby, the Attorney General, talking about the concerns that many mayors have about what they're seeing in their downtown cores and that is the increase in property crimes, the the assaults too, as as, uh, the Minister was mentioning there. They're very visual and that is exactly right. How many stories have we seen or heard about or talked about uh, in the media in the last little while about what we see happening in our downtown cores? So yes, complex care will help, but also I think cracking down in some areas is he pointed out some people will not want to go to care. They will refuse that. So is help on the way because these downtown areas really need it. If you want to weigh in, simmy at CKNW. This is Mornings with Simi. Well, a new survey has come out from Leger about vaccine hesitancy. And boy, they talked to a lot of people, something like 3,000 Canadians, with some surprising results on that. I thought, let's find out more. Here's our contributor, Raji Silhall. Morning, Raji.
5: Hi, Simi. Yeah, I think our health officials were really counting on vaccine hesitancy eventually going away, just that eventually everybody would be encouraged to you know, roll up their sleeve and just do it. In fact, I think they hope the vaccine passport was going to encourage that even more. But this big survey shows that some Canadians remain skeptical of those vaccines and boosters and it doesn't look like it's going to change for them. So one in eight believe a lot of these myths that are out there about it a lot of the misinformation and another one in five are unsure and if you put those ratios together it's pretty high so the survey looked at the reasons why and the number one reason that came up in the survey for people not wanting to get vaccinated or boosted was that they think that the vaccine was developed by rushed research so they They question the effectiveness um, of the vaccine and they say that the the safety of it can't be trusted. Also, Simi, some people said uh, that they believe the side effects are dangerous. Uh, some think that there's a lingering, um, lingering part of the vaccine that just stays in your body forever and is poorer for your health. There's some people who still believe that vaccines, all vaccines, cause things like autism, which we uh, know it does not. But our numbers overall with vaccine hesitancy are quite different from the states um, in an encouraging way. So Americans tend to believe uh, things that are a little bit myths that are a little bit more outland. For example, Simi, uh, 15% of polled Americans agree that the vaccine for COVID-19 was developed with controversial substances such as aborted fetuses. And 4.5% of Canadians still believe the vaccine contains a microchip. And over 7% of Canadians believe the vaccine gives you covid and 9.4% believe the myth that the vaccine enters your cells and changes your DNA, with almost 11% of Canadians believing that it will change your fertility. So I, I saw these That's numbers. That's a lot and of people. Pretty. <laughs>
0: yeah. I'm just a little it's surprised a by how high those numbers
5: are. Yeah, and so am I. And they actually looked at why misinformation is, is so alluring. Two people, and a lot of folks, uh, you know, obviously they care about their health, but some people just love a good conspiracy story and fall prey to all of this misinformation. And the survey finds that it's actually people from a lot of different backgrounds from all walks of life. But I talked to Jack Jedweb, he's the uh, president and CEO for the Association of Canadian Studies that was involved with this research. He said, the common thread for believing in vaccine myths was actually level of education.
4: So when I do the correlation, uh, uh, looking at levels of education, uh, people with lower levels of education are much more likely to believe these things. Uh, but it's true, it's been, you know, uh, there hasn't been a particular group. It's been uh, sort of a very diverse group of people across many different communities with, uh, as you say, different uh, income Situations, uh, Although, you know, the survey work does show that educational attainment is an important predictor in the extent to which people are ready to believe these things are not. So, uh, you know, a lot of people are, have sort of uh, lower knowledge, awareness about uh, some of these things, and they're being preyed on by, you know, people who stand for whatever reason to benefit from circulating this misinformation.
0: I guess that's what always got me about all of this over the last couple of years, Raji, is it seemed to me that there, for the people who were spreading this misinformation, there was some benefit to them, whether it was generating likes for their Facebook page or just becoming better known or the attention that it brought them. Some some yeah. people might have genuinely had some concerns, but the people who were out there like actively spreading this misinformation also seemed like they were benefiting from it.
5: Yeah, definitely. We saw a lot of, uh, you know, huge media personalities, especially in the States, emerge in the pandemic because of the misinformation that they were spreading, we, you know, that they gained millions of followers through doing that. And I wondered at home here in Canada and in the province what the government could have done differently about their health messaging or handled differently in the pandemic in general so that there was more trust for the information that they put out too. Because our government made some missteps, I think, you know, and you look at uh, government mistrust, it saw some major peaks during the pandemic. Look at the trucker protests, right? But also look at uh, our own provinces mishandling of testing, Uh, When we didn't have enough testing available, what about masks? You know, there are other places, uh, even in the States, there were States uh, and counties that the government provided masks to everybody. Um, And we were told to mask up, but not everyone was provided those masks. So I just think that there were some things that didn't line up that could have lined up in terms of educating people to create that trust with Canadians so that they would believe the information that the government and public health officers had to share about the pandemic.
0: I do wonder if we've learned anything from that though you know (laughs) like if the next time uh, god forbid that it was the next time but if this were to happen again and we needed to have this kind of public information campaign
5: have we learned from this process? It's a great question. I, I mean, our government, pu- public health officers were put in a position where they had to act so quickly. Yeah, exactly. They had to be nimble about things changing on a dime and a uh, huge responsibility. So I don't know if we can say that we've learned anything and we'll do anything differently going forward. Um, but I think that we have, we have this example that we can lean on if they so choose to, but we just also don't know what the future holds for different viruses. We don't know what uh, so requirements would be out there for restrictions and that kind of thing.
0: Oh, so true. Raji, thank you for that. Thanks,